0: to more (laughs) edifying things. Uh, We're looking, seeming at Jeremiah chapter 17. And if you have the handout, I've provided uh, a brief outline of the chapter uh, suggesting a descriptive pattern here, descriptive of the relational condition of the heart, The sinful heart's steel-like estrangement from God and its ongoing malediction. The saved heart's flesh-like transformation by God and its subsequent benediction. And this uh, pattern is arranged contrastively uh, contrastively rela- relational conditions of the uh, hard heart and the saved heart. However, we must also come to grips with a narrative element in this chapter. That is a element of the chapter which is actually a story. It rec- recounts a dramatic or historical uh, event. And if any of you have had the chance to look at the chapter, what would you suggest in this passage is a narrative element? Glance down at, go ahead, Ben. I would say the, the keeping of the seven. Right. If you look at verse 19, you'll notice that Jeremiah is instructed by the Lord to go to the public gate of the temple in Jerusalem. And consequently, <clears throat> this uh, story of the issue of the Sabbath in Jerusalem during the days of Jeremiah begins to uh, take on a narrative color. We have a story of Jeremiah in confrontation with the nation. Uh, <clears throat> with respect to the Sabbath day. Now, the scene or the setting of this narrative, and this narrative element covers verses 19 to 27 of the end of the chapter. The scene or the setting is the temple gates or the temple gate. And I'm wondering if any of you have a translation which reads there in verse 19, the gate of Benjamin. Do any of you have a translation that has that reading? That's all right if you don't. I, I raise it because there are some versions which have translated the name of the gate there in verse 19 as the gate of Benjamin. <clears throat> it's not in the Hebrew text, so it's a suggestion by the translators who have followed that idea and the other problem is that the gate of benjamin is unknown we we do not know where it was uh, <clears throat> don't know whether it was on the east or the north side of the city of jerusalem and so consequently it uh, remains a mystery in its own right however uh, <clears throat> the the public gate or the gate of the temple is the more appropriate translation So that is the scene of this story or narrative where Jeremiah stands there to make this declaration. And the location is obviously Jerusalem and the theme is the Sabbath day. The narrative element then at the end of this chapter raises the question of the conjunction or the interface, the interrelationship between verses 1 to 18 and verses 19 to 27. Is there some connection between uh, these two parts of this chapter? I'm going to leave that question aside in terms of an answer for the present and go on to examine some of the details uh, of the chapter beginning at the first verse. Now, uh, the iron and the diamond, if that's the translation you have as the New American Standard has it in verse 1, the iron and the diamond are indicative of what? Terry? Unpenetrable or? That's you, 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 alright, your, your head went up and I thought that you, you were primed and ready for that one. I, I would say uh, not penetrable uh, meaning good. Uh, what, what kind of a substance is a diamond? The, one of the hardest. Yes, diamond. it's very hard, isn't it? And that also would be true of iron. Irons a very hard metal. So the point here is the obdurate quality or the adamant quality. Uh, the word adamantine uh, means very hard, obdurate meaning very hard and stubborn. So the iron and the diamond are indicative of this hardness of heart which is part of the sinful character of Judah. If you hold your finger there in the 17th chapter and turn over to the book of Zechariah, <coughs> Let's take a look at another passage which is similar to this, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12. And Ben, I'm going to ask you to read it because I know that you have a New American Standard. And the New American Standard has a correct translation here. Uh, Zechariah 7, verse 12. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of Hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of Hosts. And who would one of the former prophets be, Ben? Jeremiah Jeremiah would be one of them. How hard is flint? Yes, it's very, very hard. I don't know if you've ever had a, a flint... Arrowhead in your hands. I don't know whether you've ever had the opportunity to handle an Indian flint arrowhead. They're very, very strong, very, very uh, uh, obdurate, very, very hard. All right. So, now the other passage is in Ezekiel, and if you turn uh, past Jeremiah to Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. Terry, are you there yet? Oh, she, he got it for you. Okay, would you, would you read verse 19 of chapter 11? Sure. And I shall give them one heart and shall put a new spirit within them. And I shall take the heart of the stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Very good. Thank you. Notice the heart of stone there and that's repeated in Ezekiel 36, 26, that same language. So this flinty, stony hard, iron, steeled, diamond, impervious heart of sin, which is the heart of unbelieving Israel, is described uh, in that uh, first verse. and uh if we uh, think about uh, this character of the sinful heart we turn back to chapter 13 verse 23 for a moment and we remind ourselves of something we looked at some weeks ago that famous passage in Jeremiah 13:23 uh, can the ethiopian change his skin Or the leopard his spots, then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Uh, when we were examining that passage, you recall what we were indicating as the focus of Jeremiah's comment there. Particularly that line, uh, then you are also, you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Robert? What were we thinking about when we were talking about that? Do you recall, or just looking at the verse, what's it emphasizing? Ben, that's impossibility. Utter impossibility, or give me that in a good canons of Dort paradigm. Yeah, really. Total depravity, total and its inseparable Siamese twin. You've already you've already said it in other words, but we have uh, twin T's, don't we? With total depravity, we actually have two T's, don't we, Terry? What's the other T? Ben has given us total depravity, canons of Dort, which the Westminster Confession also picks up on, gives us total. What did you What did you say, Ben, as you explained? it's total uh, total inability inability correct the two t's all right total depravity contains within it total inability and that's what jeremiah is saying here well here we have this totally adamant or totally obdurate or totally iron diamond hardened heart which of course is totally unable because it is accustomed to doing what is in its depraved nature and is therefore unwilling to do the good, uh, as 1323 indicates. So uh, we we realize then that this passage here in seventeen one is underscoring the inability of an iron heart, hard as diamond to make itself Malleable to make itself soft as the tender newborn flesh of a baby. In other words, there is no capacity, there is no ability, there is uh, no inclination even for this uh, iron hard heart to be soft and tender and malleable, and fleshly. It remains obdurate. That is the condition of all men and women and children by nature. And consequently, the inability as well as the depravity leaves us reeling with the understanding that in and of ourselves, we are powerless to alter our inherent condition and nature. Now, in this first verse of 17.1, you'll notice that he mentions the altars, the horns of their altars. Why is he bringing up the matter of their altars when he's mentioning the sin of Judah? Lisa, what do you think about that? What, what altars is he talking about? Is he talking about the altar in the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem? God's altar? He's already said in the first line that there's something about their sin. Go ahead. No, it's actually a real altar. I mean, if it's not the altar of the lord what altar could it possibly be what altars could they possibly be frequenting altar kind of their images yes yes the altars of the idols the altar of baal for instance so this sin which he has in mind here not only hard-hearted sin is a sin which is devoted to the idolatry Of the idols which Jeremiah has been excoriating the nation for bowing before, not only Baal, but Moloch and Chemosh and the Asherim, etc. All right. So uh, there is this context of the idolatry of Judah. That is the particular sin that he's looking at as a demonstration of their adamant, Obdurate hardness of heart, diamond-like, impervious to the word of God. Now, when we come to verse 2, he says they remember their children. Why would he say after uh, the horns of their altars, they remember their children? It's a God. God failed sacrifice could be the sacrifice of their children on the altars. Remember, they had practiced infanticide. They had sacrificed their children, as we've described previously, as, in fact, Jeremiah himself describes previously. That's one possibility. So as he's he's mentioned the horns of the altar, then you would remember that some of the children had been laid upon the horns of the altars to be burned up as a sacrifice to Baal and to Chemosh and to Moloch uh, gods who actually accepted uh, human sacrifice, <clears throat> is there any other possibility of explaining the meaning of that verse as they remember their children remembering their altars. <clears throat> Let me suggest that it could mean that they're remembering that their children join them at the altars. In other words, the idolatry of the sin of Judah is a family affair. They take their children to the groves and the shrines of Baal. And Moloch and Chemosh, et etc. <clears throat> in other words, this is just simply a, a, an adult only. In other words, this is not an R or X-rated affair. This is a family business. <clears throat> Those idolatry is for the kids as well as for the grown-ups, which makes sense, of course, because if you are uh, in, instilling this devotion to the idolatrous gods, you want to begin uh, with your children while they're young. Uh, and so you want to nurture them up in the same idolatry that you delight in. So it's possible that that, uh, expo- that, that verse can uh, uh, go either way. <clears throat> but uh, notice they remember their children. What do they not remember? Verse 19 and following, what do they not remember, Ben? Well, it keeps the they do not remember to keep the Sabbath day holy, do they? They do remember to go to the altars of the Baals, the altars of the idols, the altars of the gods who are no gods, but they do not remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. And the word remember that is used here is the very same word that is used For Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's the same Hebrew word. Well, they do not remember the Sabbath day, but they do remember the days for worshiping their idols, don't they? They not only remember the days for worshiping their idols because they bring their offerings to the horns of their altars, they remember the altars of the idols where they bring their sacrifices And they remember the places in which they worship their idols. Notice they remember the green trees on the high hills, verse 2. They remember the high places where their sin was spread throughout their borders, verse 3. So they don't remember the Lord's Day, and they don't remember the Sabbath, uh, sanctification of the Lord's Day Sabbath, but they do remember the place where they worship their idol gods. In fact, they are obsessed with their idol gods. They long to be possessed by their idol gods, which is why pagan idolatry embraced sexual relations in worship, obsession to be possessed by the god or the goddess, this obsession to be identified with the divine, to be swallowed up in the ecstasy or the mystery of the ethereal. All right, this is uh, ancient idolatry. Let's think for a moment about idolatry in our modern culture. We've reviewed this before in our comments about the uh, idolatry Uh, uh, condemning message of Jeremiah, but let's pause to reflect once again on idolatry that in our modern culture eschews metal, wooden, and stone gods and goddesses. Modern idolatry is the idolatry of adulation. It is the idolatry of adoration. It is the idolatry of worshipful devotion. It is the idolatry of obsession. Obsession with self. Obsession with self, which is, in fact, the fundamental power of idolatry in ancient culture as it is the fundamental power of idolatry in modern culture. Take the adulation of pleasure, so seductively enshrined in our culture with its rites, its rituals of devotion, worshipful devotion to pleasure providers, religious like trust in those who assure one of ease. Pleasurable ease. And so the devotees pledge their dependence. Pledge their dependence on those who provide them with ease. The ease of co-dependence. The ease of contentment. The ease of no responsibilities save to bow before the pleasure providers the ease providers, the all-powerful providers upon whom they are dependent for their ease and their pleasure, and they are obsessed with it, and they will not give it up. They will, in fact, ask you for more of it because it insatiably consumes them, with the obsession of possessing ease and pleasure and no responsibility. That is modern idolatry. Or take the adoration of power, power to dominate other humans with control, We, the powerful, determine your limits. We, the elite, even determine your liberties. Take the adoration of the power to dominate other humans with proscription. Forbidding what the power brokers ban and forbid and label. Take the adoration of the power to dominate humans with prescription, decreeing and regulating what the power brokers desire to regulate and legislate. Or take the adoration of the most worshipful power to dominate humans with amplification, extending and increasing power more and more pervasively over human beings and human actions so that little freedom and liberty remains. The adoration of power, modern idolatry, or Take the worship of the person, the adulation and exaltation of personality to cultic devotion, erecting a shrine around personal charisma, personal energy, personal magnetism, genuflecting at the aura of the person's appearance, godlike, on stage, on screen, in person. Worshipful adoration of God-like person. More modern idolatry. And the creed of this modern cult, this cult of personality, this veneration of power, this reverence for dependence on pleasure. The creed of this modern cult is the credo of suppression. Suppression of anything or anyone who disagrees with its divine creed. Its infallible creed of ridicule. Sarcasm, mockery, deceit, caricature, and outright falsehood. Outright falsehood devoted to silence, to suppress, to subjugate all and any opposition. The creed of suppression. Modern. Idolatry, modern idolatry, which manifests itself in a heart that does not believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, does not believe in the triune God because it rejects a deity outside of its own pleasure. Does not believe in the triune God because it rejects a God outside of its own power. Does not believe in the triune God because it rejects a a creed apart from its own creed, its own self-advancing creed and agenda of the cult of its own personality. It does not believe in the triune God because it rejects a shrine not consecrated and sanctified to itself. And it does not believe in the triune God because it rejects a narrative which does not spin the myth it has fabricated about itself even a narrative of deceit. It has invented to preserve and perpetuate itself. Modern idolatry. All about the worship of the self. And the God-like persona who lies within the self. We are really not so far removed from ancient idolatry of the days of Jeremiah. We are not so sophisticated and enlightened as we suppose ourselves to be. We find ourselves face to face with the very same fundamental principle of idolatry, which has always bewitched sinful men and women and children since the serpent invaded the garden of Eden and demanded, has the triune God really said? All right, now, Verse 4 refers to a phrase which we've looked at before, namely this clause which says the land not known or the land which you do not know. First of all, what land is this? Terry, what land is this? Babylon. It's the land of Babylon. And that reminds us of what we talked about last week, that going out to the land not known was a reverse what, Terry? Do you remember? Um, reverse of, of, of the, the land God gave. That's true. Okay, but they're going... Into exile, they're going into bondage. Back into slavery. Yeah, so it's a reverse what? Reverse, reverse exodus. Reverse exodus. It's a reverse exodus, correct? So this uh, this phrase reminds us of that uh, return, uh, going out to Babylon as a reverse exodus paradigm. All right, any questions uh, to this point? That's the first uh, section or the first portion of this 17th chapter. It brings us to the second portion, verses 5 to 8. Yes, Ben? In my uh, Bible here, uh, at verse 2, there's a reference to Jeremiah 7, verse 18, which would... I can't think of the word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Jeremiah seven eighteen is where they, the children remember because the children were involved in the. Uh, yes, very good. Go ahead, Ben. Do you want to read it? The children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven, and they pour out libations to other gods in order to spite them. Thank you very much for noting that and uh, even reminding me of something I've forgotten about that unders- underscores the kind of fine family affair that's involved in uh, this idolatry. That was uh, Jeremiah seven verse 18. he's, re- he's reminding uh, us that the teacher doesn't have total recall. <laughs> <laughs> Ben, I was giving you credit. (laughs) Take a bow. (laughs) No, thank you very much for noting that, because, of course, it it, uh, strengthens my suggestion that that verse could refer to uh, the family uh, as a whole worshiping the idols. All right. Now, in uh, verses five to eight from the outline, you'll notice that we have a symmetrical pattern here. It's uh, very carefully uh, structured. It begins with the relationship of malediction. Cursed is the man. It tells you why he is cursed, because he trusts in the arm of his strength, in the arm of his flesh, and then it gives a simile. He is like Something. Okay, the simile in this case is like a bush in the desert. Now notice the location of the bush is as important as the kind of bush it is, and we'll talk about that below. But there is the one descending paradigm, the relationship of the one who is under the curse. Now that is contrasted, With the relationship of benediction, verse 7, blessed. The relationship of benediction follows from the man who trusts in the Lord. And interestingly, the second line there, and whose trust is the Lord. It's an interesting reversal of the order Somewhat mini chiasm there, and so it plays back upon itself as a perfect reciprocal mirror. He trusts in the Lord, and his trust is the Lord, okay? And he is like, in the simile now, the simile in verse 8, he is like a tree beside water streams, combining uh, the line, the first and second line of verse 8. Now, this is a relational paradigm which goes back to my original suggestion about the basic outline of this chapter at the top of the outline page, namely that we have a descriptive relational condition which contrasts the sinful heart with the saved heart. Here, the contra- contrast is between the, uh, the uh, man under the malediction of the curse Versus in contrast with the man under the benediction of the blessing. These are two humanities. In fact, this is straightforward biblical thinking. There are only two kinds of people. There are anthropocentric and theocentric people. Now, anthropocentric. Mary Lou, if you see that word there on the page, can you guess what anthropocentric means? How, how about theocentric? Would theocentric be easier for you? Yeah. What's that mean? Centered on whom? <laughs> theology. On God, on God himself. Yes, the theology of God's existence and being. Very good. Now, does that help you with anthropocentric, or do you need your husband to help you there? We both need each other. Must be man. Yes, anthropology, okay? That would be the most familiar English word you would have, the study of man. So that's man-centered. All right, so this man under the malediction of the curse is anthropocentric. He's man-centered, self-centered. He's distinguished from the blessed man who is theocentric. He is God-centered. Well, on the one hand, as we go down the line of the contrast between these two kinds of mankind, these two kinds of people, the one uh, uh, side on the left is devoted to human autonomy. Now, autonomy is a uh, word that is used routinely in Orthodox Presbyterian circles. And uh, what does that word mean? Robert, do you want to try autonomy? Autonomy would be uh, uh, self sufficient. Uh, okay, auto means self. Okay, now what does namas mean? What's the nami mean, or the anami mean? Uh, well, that would be second or first person plural, right? We no? Are. No? Let me try it this way. Uh, Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomos, okay? It's the same Nami that is here at the end of Autonomy. What does Deuteronomy mean? If you break that down into, it's a compound Greek word. It, what is Deuteronomos? Uh, uh, second. Second what? Uh, uh, Second name? No. What what is given the second time in Deuteronomy? It gets it. Yes, yes. So nomos is the word for law. So autonomy would mean what? Okay. It would be a self law. -law. Yeah, law unto himself. Okay, the law comes himself. He's the highest measure of law, he himself. So autonomy refers to law coming from himself. Well, <clears throat> the contrast there is theonomy. So, what does theonomy mean, Ben? What does theonomy mean? God's law. God's law, right? Now, we're not talking here about the movement of theonomy associated with Rushduni, Bonson, and others. That's not the issue. Okay, that's a separate discussion. So, we'll leave that off to the side. We're just simply defining what the word means. This uh, blessed man he uh, submits not to the law that arises from himself, but to the law of God. Now, the next uh, uh, category is this uh, aspect of dependence, something we talked about when we discussed modern idolatry. The man who trusts in himself is dependent upon the horizon because his horizon rises no higher than that horizontal dimension. Whereas the man who is dependent upon the Lord, centered upon God and upon his will and law, is vertically dependent. He is dependent upon the transcendent. So the one has a very flat view of life because his horizon is only as flat as the horizon of the curvature of the earth. And everything in his purview has to do with the world, with material existence. But the man who looks up unto heaven is dependent upon the God who is transcendent and above the horizon, but the God who also speaks into the horizon in order to draw that blessed man theocentrically into the glory presence of the Lord. All right, the next category is the human weakness, which was uh, pointed out in terms of the arm of strength or the arm of the flesh of the cursed man, whereas the uh, opposite of that would be divine power. That is, the blessed man trusts in the power of the Lord. Uh, This human weakness leads to human treachery, so that the cursed man is treacherous. He's traitorous. He's deceitful, he cannot be trusted, whereas the blessed man is one who manifests the trustworthiness of God because not only does he trust the Lord, his trust is in the Lord, or trust is the Lord. In other words, he's manifesting the trustworthiness of God in his trust in God. And that, of course, means that that human weakness is impotent, Uh, as compared with the omnipotence of divine power and the consequence of the uh, anthropocentric worldview is damnation, whereas the consequence of the theocentric worldview is salvation. Now, when I say theocentric there, please understand me carefully, theocentric in terms of Trinitarian theocentricity. We're not talking about Islamic cent- theocentricity. We're not talking about Ju- Judaic theocentricity. We're not talking about Unitarian theocentricity. We're talking about Trinitarian. Theocentricity, biblical theocentricity, which is the centricity of the one God and three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So don't think that when I'm saying theocentricity, I just have this kind of amorphous notion of, uh, you know, some kind of divine being. No, it is the full Trinitarian revelation of the divine being of uh, biblical uh, of the biblical text. All right now, I mentioned that we would talk about this bush a little bit in verse six. We noted uh, up above that uh, this bush is in the desert. The Hebrew word here is actually uh, a juniper bush or juniper shrub. It's not really a, a, a large bush, and it does not have deep roots. It's very shallow. Uh, it has very shallow rootage. And is found in the desert, as the text suggests. Uh, the juniper tree or the juniper bush uh, grows in the desert of the Arabah. Now, the Arabah, where's the Arabah? Scott, I'll put that one to you. Where's the Arabah? in the desert. Um I don't the, ge- the geography of the Near East, where is the Arabah? Does anybody know where it is? All right, right. it is the region south of the Dead Sea. Notice also in this verse <clears throat> that in verse 6, it is, uh, it grows in a land of salt without inhabitant. And uh, the Dead Sea, of course, is called in the Old Testament the Salt Sea a couple of times. <clears throat> and uh, it has the highest level of salt water concentration in the world. It's even more salty than the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Uh, so this region South of the Dead Sea, going down to the Gulf of Aqaba. If you can imagine the the Sinai Peninsula, which is like a great inverted triangle, the Gulf of Aqaba is on the right-hand side of that triangle, and uh, from the Gulf of Aqaba up to the Dead Sea is the uh, it is the Arabah, the not the Aqaba but the Arab Arabah. Okay, so if you think of your geography. Uh, You may remember that the Gulf of Aqaba was the center of the Six Days War in 1967. The outbreak of the Sixties War centered around the Egyptians blockading the Port of Eilat, which is the seaport that Israel has to the Indian Ocean. They could go down through the Gulf of Aqaba, through the Red Sea, and out into the Indian Ocean. when the Egyptians blockaded it, that meant the Israelis had no outlet to the east. They would have to go all the way out through the Mediterranean, through the Straits of Gibraltar, and down around the Horn of Africa. So uh, that provoked the Six Day War in '67, and after the uh, the rise uh, after the fall of Mubarak a year ago, uh, and the uh, the the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in in Egypt, uh, there were uh, also some Egyptian warships which started to attempt to repeat that blockade of the Gulf of Aqaba, as if they were going to reignite that uh, that uh, campaign or that blockade once again to provoke Israel. Well, at any rate, it's in that region from the Gulf of Aqaba up to the southern end of the Dead Sea, which is called the Arabah, very desolate desert. And in fact, around the Dead Sea, just in the border at the south end of the Dead Sea, very salty. And this juniper bush is, uh, does grow there. It is found there. It's not, it's, not, it's, it's not only found there. It's found elsewhere, but it is found there. And it has very shallow roots, so that it uh, it, it does not uh, go. Excuse me, it does not go deep. That's the point. So the uh, the roots of the cursed man, the man of of uh, uh, trusting in his own flesh, uh, those roots don't go very deep. He does not have very strong roots. All right. Well, it's time for your break. So uh, take a break, and then we'll come back and do page two of the outline, beginning to look at the tree in verse eight. Now at the contrastive tree or uh, piece of vegetation in verse eight. And uh, this tree, notice in the second line, has roots which are uh, deeply extended because of the water streams which feed it. Notice that in verse 13, these streams are likened to the fountain of living water uh, which is in the Lord. And that uh, passage in verse 13 would take us back to chapter 2, verse 13, in which we may recall that Jeremiah says that uh, the children of Judah had hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, and forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. So this image of the streams of living water, living water, meaning that which is moving or that which is capable of uh, nurturing and bestowing and sustaining life, is a reflection of God's own uh, drenching and uh, outpouring abundance of his own uh, regenerative grace. So this tree, uh, which is uh, planted by the water, Uh, rooted in the streams of uh, living water. Uh, This uh, tree is a description of the soul-refreshing, soul-drenching streams of living water which flow to our hearts from beneath the throne of God. That imagery, if you trace it uh, through the uh, scriptures, will bring you to... Uh, the book of Revelation, where from beneath the throne of God comes a fountain or a stream, a river of uh, waters, living waters. Now, verse nine. Um, <clears throat> does anyone have a King James with them? Do you, uh, Lisa? Would you read the the first two lines of verse nine in the King James for us, please? Thank you. It's that line, desperately wicked, that Lisa read from the King James that I want to focus on. You'll notice that the King James translates two words there, desperately wicked, at the end of that clause. The problem with the King James is that there's only one word in the Hebrew text. So that the, the New American Standard. And Ben, you have the New American Standard. I know I don't know whether anybody else has a New American Standard, but the the translation there, Ben, if that last word is what? Sick. Desperately sick. Once again, the New American Standard has translated one word by two, but it is suggested not desperately wicked, but desperately sick. Well, if we take the New American Standard suggestion that the heart which is deceitful above all things, is desperately sick. Is the New American Standard at odds with Paul's doctrine? Let's take a look at Colossians 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 13. Keep your finger in in Jeremiah 17, and let's turn to the New Testament for a moment. Let's take a look at Colossians 2. And whoever finds it, uh, just uh, go ahead and read it out for us. Colossians Colossians two verse thirteen, please. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. You were dead in your transgressions. All right. Notice that Paul suggests that the sinner is dead in his transgressions. Now if we wanted to parallel that, we could turn to Ephesians two, verses one and five. We'll not do that right now. It's just enough for us to see that it's also in Colossians. Usually we find it in Ephesians. I wanted you to see that it's also paralleled in Colossians. Therefore, is the New American Standard taking exception to Paul's doctrine of the nature of the transgressor, that is, sinner in his natural state? Is the New American Standard suggesting that the sinner in his natural state is sick? Yes. Sounds like it. And if he's sick and that's the New American Standard, that's what the New American Standard is doing, then what, uh, what doctrine of uh, sin, what doctrine of, uh, of uh, the sinful condition of uh, natural man, unconverted man, is the New American Standard promoting? What, you mean the word mortal? No, the word Sick. is this an incorrect translation or a quicker words but let's just think about what they might be suggesting alright <laughs> right now we're uh, we're, we're, go- we're running with what Cheryl has suggested that they do think that the sinner in his natural state is sick so, so what view of man does that uh, line up with the Arminian notion of the fact that he's not dead ok the sinner is not dead in his natural state he's only sick and it's certainly not Pelagian, that is where the sinner is in a state of health, he's well. So if we're going to use this medical imagery and translate the word here, sick, then we have a possible contradiction of the apostles' doctrine in the New Testament. Now, I don't think that the New American Standard translators are trying to take issue with Paul. I think they're tempted to talk about how desperate this condition is. It is a condition of desperation like a person who is desperately ill, desperately sick. <clears throat> right, now, once again, uh, I'm not blaming them for a semi-plagian or Arminian notion here. I think I can get them off the hook uh, and give them the benefit of the doubt. But nonetheless, it does raise the issue and it's worth us thinking about it. <clears throat> but did they translate the word correctly? That's the other issue. Is sick appropriate here? Okay. They've got desperately sick. We've only got one Hebrew word. So they have translated sick and left it. The heart is deceitful above all else, is more deceitful than all else, and is sick and left desperately out. Let's see what they do with verse 16. Take a look at verse 16 of the 17th chapter. And Mary Lou already mentioned the word that I'm looking for here in this verse, but she was mentioning it in relationship to verse 9. Do you remember what word you said, uh, Mary Lou, a little bit ago? Desperately, I think. No, you used another word. Uh, oh, oh, woe. Woeful, yes. Is that in your translation of verse 13? Was it verse 16, I'm sorry? Along for the woeful day? I think so. Yes. All right, now notice, if you have a New American Standard... In verse 16, they translate the very same word that they translate desperately sick in verse 9 as woeful. Very good, Cheryl. (laughs) That That does not compute, does it? Why didn't they use consistent principle of translation? In other words, if they used woeful in verse 16, why did they use sick in verse 9? Or if they use sick in verse 9, why did they use woeful in verse 16? Why didn't they uh, say in verse 16, for instance, that I have, I have longed for the sick day? Because it's the same word that they used to translate sick in verse 9. All right, so we've got a problem here, don't we? King James has a problem of trying to interpret the meaning of the verse which only has one Hebrew word and saying something about the desperately wicked condition of the sinner. But the Hebrew word doesn't mean desperately wicked. It means desperate. At least it means desperate. So we could say, even in verse 16, I longed for the desperate day or the day of desperation. The woeful day is a day of desperation, Alright, right, now does that shed any light upon why we would translate verse 9 a little bit differently than sick? If we're going to be consistent with what the New American Standard did with verse 16, with the very same Hebrew word, and we have that Hebrew word in verse 9, then how could we translate verse 9 in a way which is parallel to how it was translated in verse 16? You following me? Robert? It seems to me that if you're going to use medical terminology here, you can be sick, and there's a way to heal it. Sick, and there's a way to manage it, but not heal it. And sick, and there's no way to heal it, it's terminal. Could be, but the point is that the medical terminology is not behind the Hebrew word. So, in other words, this word that's translated in verse 16, woeful or desperate, is the more appropriate translation of the Hebrew term. So, sick doesn't qualify. In other words, I'm eliminating the word. But now let's go back and say, how could we translate verse 9 consistent with woeful or desperate? All right, what's being described in verse 9? It is the It is the state or condition of the soul in that sinful relationship, isn't it? All right, so could we translate that verse consistent with the way the word is used in verse 16, and is in a desperate state, and is in a woeful state. And what's a woeful state? A woeful state means woe is coming on you, What? Correct? And when God utters his woes against you, what does that mean? Benediction? No. No. Malediction. Does it mean blessing? No, it means curse. So I think the solution to this, uh, shall we say, little exercise in how to properly translate this Hebrew word, I think the solution is to realize that what Jeremiah is describing is the condition of the heart which is under the curse of God, the condition of the heart, which is hardened in sin, like iron and diamond, the condition of that heart is desperate. The condition of that heart is woeful because it is under the curse of God's woe. This would make this passage then fully consistent with Paul's doctrine of being dead in trespasses and sin. In other words, there's no... There, there's no spiritual life there. There's nothing to commend that heart to God. It is in a state of desperate alienation, separation, and woe before Almighty God. It needs what? It Needs help. It, I heard Lisa. Did you say it? A new heart. it needs a new heart? It needs a transformation it needs a what? One more word. It needs a regeneration, does it not? It is in desperate states, it must be born again. It is in a woeful state, it must be regenerated. It must be born from above. It must have a heavenly birth, not an earthly birth. It must have a birth in the spirit, Not a birth in the flesh. That is the only way to relieve its desperate condition. Does that come by its own works and power? It comes by the work of the Holy Spirit, which is a work of grace. Grace. Very good. So it's going to be grace, grace and all of grace because it's only the omnipotent grace of God, which could regenerate a diamond hardened heart an iron-hardened heart, a heart which was desperately in a state of woe. It's only the grace of God that could alter or change that condition. If you are in that condition, you have been the object of a gracious act of God. He has transformed your obdurate heart to give you a new heart of flesh by being born out of heaven. You haven't been born of the flesh You've been born out of heaven as an eschatological birth. Okay. Any questions? So in verse 10, what does God give? He gives what is deserved, correct? It's interesting that yesterday in the Westminster Confession class we were talking about the justice of God. That is one of his attributes. And we were describing the uh, elements of God's justice in terms of distributive justice. A classic way of describing God distributing what this verse talks about what each man deserves according to his deeds. So, the distributive justice of God is a formal way of describing God giving what is owed. Do you want God to give you what you owe? Terry, do you want God to give you what you owe? No, you don't. You don't. You don't want God's distributive justice. What? What do you want? His do you He's want His God. grace. Well, how is His justice going to be satisfied for what you owe? Because of what Christ, what Christ uh, paid that.
1: So what Christ owes, you want
0: you you want God to give you what Christ owes, right? What Christ earned, not what you've earned. Very good. All right. So here's a classic statement then, in the Old Testament, of God giving uh, uh, sinners what is due. Now verse 11 is a little challenging. This uh, description of what the partridge does is uh, is 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 a bit. Uh, confusing, partly because the text is very difficult to translate, so any of the English translations that you have are in some ways a guess at what uh, the passage actually says. It's it's a difficult and tricky piece of Hebrew. So uh, I'm going to just w- briefly suggest what the options are. Uh, there is an old tradition that a partridge will sit upon eggs that it did not lay, and uh, they will eventually hatch. In other words, it will take over a nest of some other bird, and it will sit on the eggs until they hatch. And the analogy here to the unjust man, the, un- the man who has unjustly gathered his wealth, the analogy is here: here is that he didn't uh, get his wealth uh, uh, by uh, you know, just or righteous means, uh, but he sits on what he has taken from others until it hatches to his benefit. That's one possible analogy to this partridge illustration. But the second illustration is a little more complex though it may be truer to the way uh, partridges actually uh, operate or at least some partridges uh, operate. That is the partridge sits on eggs which do not hatch because they are gathered from underneath the partridge for food before they do hatch and so they're harvested and consequently the analogy here would be that the unjust man's wealth is eventually gathered from him. It's like, uh, you know, the old saw, you can't take it with you. So even though he's gathered his wealth in an unjust and unrighteous manner, uh, it's it's going to be uh, taken from him or gathered from him, even as those eggs are taken from the partridge that uh, she or he has sat upon uh, and going to be cracked for omelets or whatever else you use partridge eggs for. I don't know what you use partridge eggs for, so I never had any partridge eggs, so... Those those of you who are experts in partridge eggs, the culinary arts, you'll have to help me out. Mary Lou, do you know anything about partridge eggs? Well, uh, they're used for for some food, of course. uh, There's something in here. In my book, my Bible says, um, 710, it said, kidneys once thought to be the seed of infections. Yeah, well, (laughs) that's talking about the reins of the heart or, you know, the old King James version of the the reins of the loins. (laughs) All right. So you've got you've got this uh, challenge of trying to figure out what this analogy is. But you get the point. The point is, regardless of what the partridge is doing with the eggs, the unjust man is in uh, analogous parallel to it. uh, What he gains is being taken from him. Which brings us to the next section uh, of the chapter, verses 12 to 18, where Jeremiah is the speaker. Now, uh, notice that he says, the glorious throne, or the glory throne. Where is the glory throne? Anyone, without looking up Isaiah 66, 1, or do you want to turn back to Isaiah? Let's take back, let's look back at Isaiah 66, verse 1. Just, just turn back a few pages, guys. Keep your finger in 17. <clears throat> Isaiah 66, verse 1. Cheryl, do you have it yet? Okay. How about you, Terry? Heaven is my throne. Heaven is my throne. So where is this glory throne, Terry? Heaven. It's in heaven. Very good. Now, he goes on to say the glory throne, the glorious throne on high. What does on high refer to? Let's turn ahead to chapter 25 of Jeremiah and look at verse 30. Jeremiah 25, verse 30. <laughs> Cheryl, did you get there yet? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Jeremiah 25, 30. Go ahead. Now, new pro- now prophecy all these words against them, and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high; he will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. Okay, where is his holy dwelling? In heaven. In heaven. So, on high is also referring to heaven. Now, <clears throat> notice Jeremiah is not looking to a throne in Jerusalem. He's not looking to a high place or an on high dimension on Mount Zion. He is looking to heaven. And from whence is he looking to it? From the beginning. What does that refer to? From the beginning. Creation. From creation, exactly. It is from the in the beginning, beginning. All right, so Jeremiah is looking to his refuge and sanctuary In heaven, something that has been present as God's holy habitation from the creation, from the beginning, from the foundation of the history of redemption. We are reminded once again that that eschatological reality, heaven, is prior even to the creation. God's holy habitation is there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before there is ever any created reality. Jeremiah is looking to that dimension. He is anticipating being in that holy habitation of God's glory throne on high in heaven as his refuge, as his sanctuary. This is a specifically eschatological anticipation. He is looking to the eschatological realm, the eschatological arena. All right. Now, where is the word of the Lord in verse 15? Who are they who keep saying to Jeremiah? Who are the they? Ben, who are the they? The people of 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 Judah, Judah, precisely. These sinners, the hard-hearted sinners of Judah. Where is the word of the Lord? Well, where is it? Look at verse 20. It's coming out of the mouth of Jeremiah, isn't it? Coming out of God's own mouth. Listen to the word of the... Where is the word of the Lord? Here is the word of the Lord. And what is the word of the Lord speaking? The word of the Lord is speaking in verse 20 about the Lord's Sabbath. Very interesting that these people are asking about where is the word of the Lord. The sin of Judah in verse 1 is the rejection of keeping the Sabbath day holy, verses 19 to 27. They're asking, where is the word of the Lord? And Jeremiah answers, on behalf of the Lord, the word of the Lord is here to listen to. Namely, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. Notice the framework in this chapter, the framework between the, shall we we say, the doctrine of the sin of Judah in verse 1, and the particular sin of Judah which is profaning or violating or breaking the sanctification of the Sabbath day in verses 19 to 27. This is a framed chapter, there is a narrative at the end which illustrates the doctrine at the beginning. In other words, the two parts of this chapter go together. They are a seamless garment. We have sin in general in verses 1 and following, namely the sin of idolatry. We have sin in particular in verses 19 through 27, namely this particular sin of Sabbath breaking, and then we frame the one with the other so that the one is exegetical of the other. The sin of idolatry leads them to break the Sabbath day. The sin of idolatry leads them to not sanctify the Sabbath day. The sin of idolatry leads them to do work on the Sabbath day, to carry in a load into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. The idolatrous heart which is hardened against the Lord is hardened against the Lord's Sabbath day. That confidence in the flesh causes them to reject the Lord as their Savior, verse 14. That confidence in the flesh causes them to reject the Lord as their Shepherd, verse 16. That confidence in the flesh causes them to reject heaven, in verse 12. That confidence in the flesh causes them to reject the eschatological David, in verse 25. It causes them to reject the everlasting city, at the end of verse 25. It causes them to reject the general assembly of the heavenly people people of Judah, Jerusalem and Benjamin who stream into the eschatological city, the city whose gates mark the entrance to an eternal Sabbath rest. This chapter is framed in a seamless garment. You cannot understand what Jeremiah is doing at the end of this chapter with the narrative of his sermon on the Sabbath day if you don't understand the sin of Judah which is desecrating it, profaning it. Refusing it. And now what did it mean to refuse to sanctify the Sabbath day? Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15 through 21. We will notice in this chapter of Nehemiah, The same vocabulary that Jeremiah is using in Jeremiah 17, 19 to 27. Nehemiah says, verse 15 of chapter 13, I saw in those days in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Notice why they are bringing the loads into Jerusalem. They are bringing them in to sell as food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nodals of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Do not your fathers do the same so that God brought on us in all this city all this trouble? Back to Jeremiah chapter 17. Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah goes on to say that he closed the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day so that they would not bring any loads or do any work on the Sabbath day. All right, so Jeremiah is also protesting the carrying of loads and doing of work Which has to do with merchandise and commercialization of the day. Carrying the load then is epixegetical of doing the work. And where does that phrase in Jeremiah 17, where does that phrase do no work on the Sabbath day, where does that, where does that phrase come from? From the fourth commandment, from Exodus 20, verse 10, it's exactly the very same Hebrew phrase. See, this is not talking about any kind of uh, innocent work. This is talking about the work that God forbids in the fourth commandment. He's talking about work which God has proscribed, specifically It said not to do. But these idol worshipers disdain it. These worshipers of themselves disdain it. These worshipers of money and commerce over all other things disdain it. They will have their pleasure. They will have their way. They will do their thing. God himself cannot tell them to do otherwise, for they refuse God's prescription of his own day. And so Jeremiah says, then, since you will not honor the Lord's day Sabbath, then you will be driven out of this land. Which means that in Jeremiah's day, the Sabbath was routinely profaned. It was commonplace because idolatry was commonplace. It was commonplace because the disdain for the law of the Lord was commonplace. It was commonplace and routine because they were going to promote themselves on that day and their pleasure on that day and what they wanted to do on that day. And God had no right to tell them they couldn't do it. For if he did, they would shake their fist in his face and tell them, so much for you, God, we are not going to keep your day holy. And God says, all right, if you are not going to keep my day holy, then you are not going to be in this holy land. And I will eject you from it. And I will give this land its Sabbath of rest. Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 21. And I will send you out of this land for 70 years into captivity. So the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest that this land deserves may be accomplished. The sin of an idolatrous nation was the sin of thumbing its nose at the Sabbath of the Lord God and saying to the Lord God, we will do whatever work we please and we will carry whatever loads we please. And we defy you to tell us not to do our pleasure. And that adamant iron heart of unbelief, which will not bend to the Lord God who himself rested on the Sabbath day, that iron heart of unbelief brings down God's wrath upon Jerusalem and Judah. Do you think That God is any less interested in the sanctification of his Sabbath day today than he was in the days of Jeremiah. I remind you that Jeremiah in this chapter has looked to heaven and that throne which is seated in that high and majestic dwelling place of God. And how does the epistle to the Hebrews describe the arena of God's high and majestic dwelling place? Chapters 3 and 4 of the epistle to the Hebrews, he describes it as an everlasting Sabbath day. Do you think that God is not conforming you unto his heavenly Sabbath by conforming you to his weekly Sabbath? Then reread Jeremiah 17, verses 19 to 27, and think, Again. Notice in that 25th verse, he talks about kings and princes sitting on the throne of David if the Sabbath day is sanctified. He talks about chariots and horsemen riding through the gates of that city, if the Sabbath is sanctified. He talks about the inhabitants of Judah, Jerusalem, and Benjamin coming from all corners of the country and nation of Judah, sitting in that city. That Notice verse 25, that everlasting city, that city which is forever. This is no mere earthly Sabbath day he's talking about. This is no mere earthly city he's talking about. This is no mere earthly Jerusalem he's talking about. He's talking about a Sabbath eternal as God himself, a rest as eternal as God's rest itself. And he's talking about a people that thumb their nose at mirroring and imitating the rest of God. And so he says, I will drive you out of my rest. You are contemptuous of my weekly rest, then I will drive you from it. I will exile you from it. I will take it from you and you will have no rest as the fire of my wrath consumes you. Now, I realize that this is not a popular doctrine in this very sophisticated age of modern America when commercialization and merchandising is going on every Lord's Day Sabbath. But it must not be so with us. We must be content to leave that for the other six days of the week and to rest. In the Lord, on his Sabbath. Is it too much for him to ask of you, who has given you six days for yourself, and only asked one day for himself? For if you do, give him what he asks He says to you in the words of Isaiah 58, I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and to bless you with the heritage of Jacob. That's an eschatological benediction. As Jonathan Edwards pointed out so long ago, it's an eschatological benediction which extends across the history of redemption all the way to the second coming of Christ. The Sabbath is an invitation to come to heaven both in the assembly of the saints in worship and in your own private devotions and in your fellowship with the Word of God and with the treasures of the ages. So, do not compartmentalize this chapter to Jeremiah's Old Testament idiosyncrasies. There's too much eschatology in these verses. There's too much Sabbath eschatology in these verses. You cannot, you dare not, ignore them. With a great privilege and blessing of remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's a delight. It truly is. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the transcendent vision of Jeremiah and the incorporation of the transcendent Sabbath into that vision in contrast to the sinful unbelief and the profanation of that Sabbath day by Judah of old. Lord, we bless you for the saving Lord and, and Redeemer that you are. We bless you for the shepherd of Israel that you are. We bless you for the one who has given benediction out of your living streams of flowing, drenching water of life. We bless you. And we bless the day in which we can enter in to an everlasting Sabbath and take our seat in eternal Sabbath rest with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the general assembly of the elect from Judah, Benjamin, and Jerusalem forever and ever. Encourage us then, O Lord, with these wonderful truths And with the power of the gospel, which burned like fire in the heart and on the lips of Jeremiah, your prophet and servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, chapters 18 and 19.